This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. Hello, everyone. I'm Anna Brockway, co-founder and president of Cherish. My guest today on the Cherish podcast is usually the guy who's asking questions on this show, but today we're going to split the script. To celebrate the Cherish podcast's 75th episode, I have the honor of interviewing our esteemed podcast host, Michael Boudreau, and talking to him about his remarkable career as a leader in the design world and as one of our industry's most visionary and beloved editors. Michael, I'm so happy to talk to you today. Thank you, Anna. It's going to be fun. (laughs) For those of you who don't know, and I have no idea how you could have missed this, but as background, Michael's editorial career is the envy of probably everyone in design. To call him the design industry's chief storyteller is an understatement. As the arts editor of Vogue, Michael worked directly with Anna Wintour, covering interiors, art, and fashion with writers like Hamish Bowles and Andre Leontali. He was also the editor of Martha Stewart Living, among other titles, including Garden and Design and Culture and Travel magazines, before becoming the beloved editor-in-chief of El Decor. On Michael's watch, El Decor was nothing less than fantastic, and it really became the touchstone for the interior design community that it is today as the most successful shelter magazine in the United States. But Michael's work wasn't just on the printed page or online. He's also launched partnerships with Memorial Sloan Kettering, the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Care Center in Miami, and for many years served on the board of one of Cherish's favorite philanthropies, the Housing Work Thrift Shops, where he helped launch the hugely successful annual Design on a Dime event. Having worked with Michael now for over three years, I particularly admire Michael's open eyes, open heart, and his open mind. Professionally, this means he's always game to try something new, experiment, and take risks. Michael continues innovating as a sought-after writer, an author, an advisor to the Design Leadership Network, and, of course, in my favorite role, as the host of our award-winning Cherish podcast. And thank you guys for listening. Michael has been a longtime visionary in our world and was an early believer in me, Cherish, and our community of sellers and buyers. What else can I say? He's got great taste. <laughs> it's my personal <laughs> pleasure and honor to welcome Michael Boudreau as my guest today. Hi, Michael. <laughs> Hello, Anna. Thank you so much. I mean, I really am blushing. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I remember it was probably about 10 years ago, the first time somebody referred to me as a tastemaker. And I thought, how is that possible? That is not, you know, I'm... <laughs> Of course you are. Of course you are. Never occurred to me as I stumbled from one thing to the next. But no, no, no. no. Um, So speaking of your background, it was really fun kind of reading up on you and starting to understand a little bit about, because when I met you, you were like this very important editor and like your whole career, you know, had happened in advance of that, that I just kind of, the time when I came upon you was when you were at El Decor. And obviously there was a long history before then that was really fun to learn about. So what I was going to do is ask you a few questions about that, starting really with your childhood. So I know you grew up mostly in Boston. You went to Yale. You got a BA in the history of art. Let's hear it for art history majors. I'm a big fan. But I was wondering if you can just talk a little bit about your childhood and what got you interested in design really from such an early age. Well, it's interesting. I mean, 
when I was a kid, my father was in the Air Force. So we traveled, or we lived in different places. And one of the formative places that we lived in, and I was only in the third grade when we moved there, was Paris. So I lived in Paris for three years, for three years as a kid. And I think that that really got my interest going in buildings and streets and people on the streets and how they dressed and how they moved and how they interacted with spaces. We actually lived outside of the city in this little town because there was a big Air Force base in Paris, but they had no more housing. And so we lived in this little town. There was a bakery across the street, a boulangerie. So the French, as we know, live in a very specific and I think fun way. So that was really interesting. And when I went to college, I was I had decided that I was going to be an architect. Hmm. And one of the things that I had an undergraduate major in, in architecture, and I took Vincent Scully's course on the history of architecture, which wow. was thrilling and really shaped my take on the world and the way I looked at buildings. And Louis Kahn was there. He was starting to work on the British Arts Center. So and he'd already done the Yale Art Gallery, Paul Rudolph's an architecture building, which most people hated. And I just thought it was the most fabulous building ever. I've always been a bit of a contrarian, I guess. <laughs> so... You know, I thought I'd be an architect and I started taking the classes and I realized that I really didn't think three-dimensionally. I mean, I could have been a perfectly mediocre architect, but, um, you know, there were people in the, there were some kids in the class who were amazingly talented and thought in a different way. And that was one of the things that, that my career has been about is like learning what I'm not good at. You know, I took photography classes. <laughs> I was not particularly good at that. I took graphic design classes. I was not particularly good at that. But I had taken all these art history classes just because I loved them. So that was an easy switch of, in terms of majors because I had so many of the credits already. And also in college, I had started writing and working for the Daily News paper, the Yale Daily News. There were some magazines on the campus that I, I wrote for. And I really loved that. And I finally, my senior year, I took a creative writing class. And that was really helpful to me. And I had this idea. I'd move to New York City. And within a year or two, I'd be writing for The New Yorker. And let's just say I've never written a single word in The New Yorker. So. <laughs> oh, it's not too late, baby. <laughs> they don't know what they're missing. Right. <laughs> But, you know, and people said, oh, what are you majoring in art history for? Because, it's you know, you're not going to make any money doing that or whatever. But my very first job was at the Museum of Modern Art, working in the publicity department, which I got through because you have to have connections in life. And you, you stumble into them, as you know. And a friend of mine, one of my roommate's best friends, girlfriend's mother was on the junior council at the Museum of Modern Art. And she knew about Perfect. this opening. I know, exactly. <laughs> so she she knew about this opening in the publicity department. So I went to work there. And I have to say, at that point, it was true. As a history of art major, you made no money. I mean, I think I was making $8,000 a year at MoMA uh -huh. when I first came to New York. But I met incredible people. People have been friends for my entire life. I learned so much about I continued learning about art and all of that. And, you know, it was a wonderful time. But after three years... I was still only making like $8,000, and I had a somewhat abusive boss. In retrospect, I realized she was somewhat abusive. At the time when it's your first job and you don't know any better, you put up with things that you would never put up with. So I quit MoMA and went to become a busboy at Tavern on the Green. So, <laughs> <laughs> a promotion. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I had to get out of there. To make and, some real money. Yeah. Okay. But actually, I did. I made a lot more I'm, money yeah. than I did, you know? I so, Yeah. So I worked at, you know, I finally got promoted to be a waiter. And I worked at Tavern on the Green for about a year. And I saved up the money to go to my first trip 
back to Europe. I mean, I'd lived there as a kid, but in third, fourth, and fifth grade, you don't get to travel as much right, as you'd like. Yeah. So I went back to Europe, and I had a friend who was living in Paris, two friends who were living in Paris, and my friend Lauren. We, we traveled to Italy. I went, I did all the things that I've been wanting to do. I traveled around and did the Piero della Francesco tour, went to Florence, all that stuff. And it was a really important thing in my life. And that's when I realized. So When I came back to New York, I got a job at the Gray Art Gallery and then did that for a few years. And I'm still good friends with the man who was my boss at the time, Bob Littman. But then I started wanting to get into magazines and stuff. And so that's how I eventually got my first job in a magazine, which was at GQ. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, stumbled from one thing to the next, as I said. Yeah. I mean, it's how life works. But I mean, it's a fascinating story. May I just ask... Your parents, I know you talked about the experience of living abroad and then your trip abroad and then just sort of being drawn to and sort of attracted to the arts and architecture and the decorative arts through through those experiences and then university. But were your parents supportive of it? Was that an important part of your upbringing or your life or was it sort of your own world and your own pursuit? My father was not supportive at all. He didn't really... My parents ended up getting divorced while I was in college. Mm-hmm. My father was not really supportive because he didn't understand. He thought I should go to the Air Force Academy. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was no way. <laughs> I'm so glad you didn't was, do that. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, you'll have free tuition. I said, no, that, that's how close we were. My mother was very supportive of anything that I wanted to do. You know, yeah. she she just thought if I wanted to do it, it must be the right thing. So I have to oh, say, so great. It, that was very helpful. It was not her world. I didn't grow up in a highly sophisticated visual world. Uh-huh. Um, my mother had good taste, I will say, and she re- really wanted to have the house be beautiful. But, you know, we moved a lot, around a lot. I had three three sisters and a brother. It was a big house. But, you know, she was very concerned with the house. And I remember how proud she was when she got a new living room set. That was the days when you would tend to buy matching things. So not everything was matching. She had, you know, and she'd get wall-to-wall carpeting in our house when we finally moved back. So in that sense, I was very aware of things. Yeah. And that helped, you know? Yeah. Interesting. But at that time, I, there wasn't, in high school, there was a couple of art classes, but not really much. We didn't study art history. So it was kind of something. Boston Latin School, where I went to high school, was right near Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum and the Amazing. Museum of Fine Arts. So I would go there after school sometimes when I wasn't working because I was also working after school a lot of the time. But I've always had that interest, you know. I don't know where it came from exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. I have a friend who's a professor at Dartmouth and he gave one of the speeches, the class speech at the end of the year. And it was rules about graduating. And one of his things was never take career advice from your parents. <laughs> <laughs> It's a little bit like your dad. Like, they want you to do what's safe, not necessarily what I used is to be the right told thing. all the time that I should take the civil service test and go work in the post office because you would have a guaranteed pension. You know, that was oh, what... laws for all of us. I mean, wow, I don't know about wow. that, but, you know, it was like... Or, or, and then the assumption was I would be a teacher. Now, I, there was no... I couldn't even get up to go to classes as a student. Never mind get up and go to be a teacher at 8 a.m. in the morning. And I, I remember once in high school, I got in a big fight with one of the administrators. And he said, you'll never be able to hold a job if you can't get in on time. And I said, well, I will never hold a job where I have to be there at 8.30 in the morning. And I never have. <laughs> well, you picked the right career. Um, <laughs> and I'm just imagining you at the post office. But that's, <laughs> but that's a good Halloween costume. We'll try that at different exactly. time. <laughs> so one of the things that you talked about was your love of writing. And I just wanted to ask you about this because it's always fascinated me. 
And you're the right person to ask this to, obviously, which is you've worked in fields, whether it's fashion or home design, which are highly visual, and yet you're a writer. Mm-hmm. And so how do you think about like how the intersection between visual and written comes together? What's well, that that's, like? That's why it was so great that I ended up in magazines, because that's where you really can do the verbal and the visual together. And I think they're you know, I used to say to my team at El Decor, I said, you know, half the readers who get the magazine aren't going to read the text, but the other half who do read the text, it's important to them that their texts be good. And I think that's true. And it, it is it is a weird thing that I write about visual things, but you know, art historians do that all the time. But, you know, one of the things that fascinated me early on coming to New York was how people how their eye gets tired and changes. Do you know what I mean? It's whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, when I first came to New York City, Mission Furniture was all the rage. There were oh like gosh, six, really? six oh. shops in the Upper West Side <laughs> in the village that sold primarily Mission Furniture, ceramics, rugs, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. It was very hot. Barbara Streisand started buying it yes. all up. The prices went through the roof. Now, no one looks twice at Mission Furniture, you know? Yeah. And you look back at pictures of yourself from 20 years ago and you think, oh my God, I look so ridiculous, but you're wearing an outfit that you lusted after, you saved money for, you thought you, and you were at the time, you were. So how does the eye change and evolve, which is a great thing for commerce because if it didn't, we'd all still be living in, you know, the 1940s or Victorian dresses. So it's great that it does. But I think, and I think that's a primal human thing about wanting to keep abreast, you know, seeing something. I remember once I did a, an essay for this little magazine, a nonprofit magazine, and it was be, it was inspired by the fact that I went to a club and these kids walked in looking like they had just come from the prairies of Indiana. And we call, I, I ended up calling, we referred to it as nerd chic. It was like, and these were absolutely hip kids, but, you know, they were sort of rebelling and they were wearing, you know, two short jeans and prairie dresses. And it was like, this was in the 80s and nobody looked like that. And I thought, this is so interesting that these kids are using in the clothing and it wasn't really fashion because no one was making it. They were getting it from thrift shops, et cetera, et cetera. But they were coming up with a different look. It's much like the grunge look that came about 10 years later. And Anna Winter was smart enough that she put it into vogue and we sort of mm-hmm. celebrated it in a way. I mean, it almost ruined Mark Jacobs' career when he did his grunge collection, but it was very important to the time and led to all kinds of other things. And I've always been interested in how that gets started and what prompts that and when and why does the eye get ready for something new? Yeah, it's really a fascinating thing. And you're right there on the edge of it in the places that you've worked. I have to tell you, I loved reading the recent Anna Wintour biography because you were in a lot of it, um, (laughs) sort of talking about your experience working with her, which you just brought up. So let me cut to that. Tell us about working with her, working at Condé Nast. It's such a legendary place. Obviously, she's such a legendary figure in the fashion industry and editorial specifically. Tell us everything. (laughs) Well, uh, once again, this was a situation where I had a friend who was friends with Anna, and she. I actually started doing a little freelance assignments for her when she was at New York Magazine, and she became the fashion person at New York Magazine. So I sort of knew her there, and it's a long, convoluted story we won't get into, but I ended up working for her when she relaunched House and Garden as HG Magazine. 
Which I loved, by the way. Right. Yes. I, I loved it too. It was the biggest financial fiasco, I think, in the history of <laughs> Condé Nast. Um, <clears throat> apparently, we found out, you know, at the time, this one thing about Condé Nast, they want to encourage talent. So they kept telling us, oh, it's wonderful, it's wonderful. Well, we heard later that they had to install an 800 number just to take people's angry calls calling to cancel their subscriptions. That was in the book, people were really yeah. mad. Right, yeah. people were really mad. Because it was this beautiful August magazine that Lou Rob did, and it was really beautiful. And I had written a few pieces for them as well. And then, and I kind of blew it up. It was like, I remember this a mini scandal. One of my early assignments was to go and visit Albert Hadley at his little house in Connecticut. Wow. Um, which you literally got off the train and walked a hundred yards and there was this little house and Anna had photographed it and he could not have been lovelier or more charming. So, and, you know, I kept saying, I would have expected, you know, Albert Hadley, the Dean of American Design to have this grand, you know, right. house and all this. And he said, what more do I need? He had, it was like three rooms. It was literally a tiny little cottage, but she had done a picture of his laundry room with a box of detergent. It was in the days when detergent came in boxes, a box of detergent on top of the washing machine. And she ran that photo and, you would have thought she had assassinated Albert Hadley. I mean, it was like <laughs> that you didn't do that back then, you know, you just didn't. And, you know, she her famous story, the little black dress, the little black chair, you know, the models in the black dresses on top of the little Italian black chairs, the range of product story. Those kind of things drew, got everybody crazy. But it was a really intense and wonderful time working there. But very quickly, uh, Connie Naz moved her out and got her to go to American Vogue. So... Again, through another convoluted, dramatic story I won't get into, I ended up going to work with, with her at Vogue, and I was there for like 11 years. So. Wow. But the thing about Anna is, and I know it's a cliche and you're not, you know, whatever, but if she had been a man, she never would have had one quarter of the criticism that she got as a woman. And, and it was, you know, our society is still sexist and still, you know, disparages women and and. Is she tough? Yes. And people have said to me, you know, oh, is she a nice person? Nice isn't the word, first word that would come to mind. With, but I admired her hugely. We got along great. I learned a lot of management skills from her. I always say to people, you have to look at how many, how long so many of her team worked for her. You right. know, and that would, not be, the, that yeah. would not be the case if she were a horrible boss. And right. she was not a horrible boss. And, and the other thing that I loved about her was that you could disagree with her. She would listen to you if you were passionate about something and you felt she was making a mistake. She would always listen to you. She didn't always change her mind, but she would listen. And I think that's such a valuable um, management skill. You know, just if your, your team has to feel they're being listened to. So first off, mark me down for being interested in knowing what Albert Hadley's laundry room looks like. <laughs> I mean, of course. It, right? it was it was in the basement. It was just it's an average. Chic. It was really? a, but it was a little bit chic. It was a <laughs> yeah. little bit chicer than mine, you know? I mean, it's but. a place we spend more time than we want to admit. Let's make it good. <laughs> exactly. Um, so tell me when you were working at Vogue, and then we have to talk about Martha Stewart as well. But when you were working at Vogue, like what are some of the stories that you worked on that really stand out to you and and that you look back on with great affection well, or not? <laughs> no, well, there were some I don't. But, you know, the amazing thing about Vogue at the time, and it was a different era. You know, magazines were really important back then. This was pre-internet and magazines covered such a range of things, even Vogue. I mean, I became, I edited Julia Reed. We actually started out working together at Vogue no at kidding. the same time. I didn't yes. know this. Oh, we wow. became fast friends. 
Oh, yeah. And then she got switched from being an editor to being a writer because wisely Anna recognized she was a brilliant writer. So I edit, you know, but Julia would write about food, entertaining. She would write about her her favorite perfume was about to be discontinued and how could she get a case of it? You know, all kinds of profile of Madeleine Albright following Hillary Clinton. I mean, it was such a mix of things. And we had a brilliant food writer, Jeffrey Steingarten, who ended up going on TV. And and he was a lawyer. He was not a professional food person, but he, he, I think there's three collections of his stories that are out and were published as books because he was such a fresh take on food and restaurants and cooking. And he would find a you know the most obscure French chef he would find the most play, obscure place in Chinatown he would talk about air he wrote a piece about airplane food once I mean it just he was really an innovator and those were the kind it was really working with the writers that I loved I worked with some of the fashion people I worked with Kate Betts on a lot of her stories loved her so stuff. yeah it was it was a really diverse and fun mix I did we did art he used to do art criticism you know have the pieces of Related, you know, because Alex Lieberman was there and he was right. such a fan of art. So it was a really diverse mix of things that I got to work on. And that was really exciting. But then after 11 years, it was like, OK, right. enough. We're taking a quick break to fill you in on some exciting news. Cherish now ships to Canada. We now have hundreds of thousands of chic and unique items ready to ship to our Canadian customers. Shop our favorites and join in the fun. And stay tuned for more announcements and even more offerings by visiting Cherish.com. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H dot com. Cherish.com. And now back to the show. And did you go from there to Martha Stewart or you had a hop, skip and a jump? In no, I went from there. I became editor of Garden Design for about a year. And then that magazine got sold and they moved every, I laid us all off and moved it down to Orlando. That was a bit of a drama. You didn't move to Orlando. Uh, yeah, no <laughs> way. <laughs> we had just bought our apartment in New York and Tribeca, so there was no way I was moving to Orlando. So there were some steps along the way. I went to work briefly at Eldercorp under Margaret Russell before. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then I, I then that's when I left and then went to go work at Martha Stewart Living. Okay. So between Martha Stewart Anna Wintour, and maybe Margaret Russell, although it sounds like that wasn't for too long. You've worked with some of the biggest female personalities in publishing. Gotta tell no, us I, everything. I ended up going back to working for Margaret. So oh, I did work okay. with her for a while. Um, <laughs> I will say this about Martha. Everybody, of course, asked about Martha because she was such a celebrity with the TV oh, and all huge, of that. Yeah. Huge celebrity. I mean, she still is. She's managed to make herself pertinent and of the moment for decades. A really and that long is time. not hard. Yeah, impressive. So, so when I started working there, she was basically just getting out of jail with that whole unfortunate saga. The thing about Martha Stewart that was a little bit difficult, was certainly difficult for me because it was one of the most stressful jobs I've ever had, is there were all these fiefdoms. There were the there was the food department, there was the decorating department, there was the the um garden department. There, I mean, all of these things were p- things that Martha Loved. I always will give her credit for this. Her interest and passion for these things was always genuine. Mm-hmm. She never made anything, you know, it's never, I'll do this because it's important for the market or the advertisers want us to do this or whatever. It was all, all came from a real passion and a real personal interest of hers. And she was very much about the best, but she had, it was a big staff. There were these departments and they, it ended up, I was trying to get them to work together Mm-hmm. Oh, that was not a good idea. Uh, <laughs> I literally at one point 
threw my back out so badly I couldn't stand up straight for two days. I mean, uh, the pressure. Uh, I mean, it just everyone was fighting for territory. Everyone was fighting for Mar- Martha's attention. And they were t- all brilliantly talented people. But to sort of corral them, I remember I tried to do a story on mirrors because there was a there were something used in design, history, art, all of this, and trying to get everyone to work together. It was, it did me in. Impossible. Um, it was impossible. And, you know, but she had so many other magazines at the time. She had the wedding. She had the little everyday food thing, which was initially a big success, but then in trouble. And the person who was the president of the company when I took over left. I thought she was great. She left, and they brought in somebody else, and there was somebody after that. It was not easy. And then 2008-9 hit, and there was, Rest. everything yeah. sort of fell apart. And yeah. So then I ended up going back to work with Margaret at El Decor. So twice she's hired me when I was out of work, and I'll always be grateful for that. And then she got the job at Architectural Digest. Yeah, and that's, huge that, deal. Yeah, huge yeah. deal. And then the publisher, who I did not know very well at that time, she came to me and said, Michael, I need continuity. Anita Sarcidi, who was the design director then and did the styling and all that, who's a brilliant, brilliant woman. Yeah, I love she's Anita. she's amazing. Yeah. Um, she came and I said, you know, I don't really know the design world that well. And I really didn't at that time. I knew some designers, but I didn't know a lot. And I said, if we're going to do this, we have to do this together because I need your entree and I need your eye and I need all of that, which is true. And I'm forever grateful to her for that. And the art director, Florentino, decided to stay on. So we became this team and it was kind of a, a very smooth transition when I took over El Decor. And it was because of the two of them and the rest of the staff who stayed. And one of the things I loved about El Decor during that time period is it really stood out from the competition because when it felt much more international in mm-hmm. terms of what you covered. And it was one of the first times I saw in magazines and in editorial sort of things that weren't perfectly art directed and sort of museum quality lighting. I mean, it felt very beautiful and chic. But it felt like the first time I really saw high-low in home presented with that level of sophistication and love. And I thought that was such a unique thing and continues to be really, for me, that that is kind of something particularly fabulous about El Decor. Yeah, I think it, it's one of the things, I mean, I have to say that started under Marion. I, I won't take responsibility for that. And Margaret continued it. And, you know, El Decor was part of an international group. It was originally owned by Hachette, who then very, sold it to hers. But they had all these international editions. So there was always this sense that design was international. But I think the presentation, and Anita had a lot to do with this as well, and Florentino with the colors that he used, mm-hmm. um, they wanted to make things more approachable. And I think that that was the start. I think it was something that the August RAD wouldn't do at that time, you know, show a kid bouncing on the sofa or, you know, a little bit more about how people Shmushed really live. pillows, coffee thing, right, coffee exactly. cup out. Yeah. Right. I mean, still a very perfect version of that. Totally. You know, I mean, gorgeous. But, right. Yeah. They, they didn't just walk in and start snapping. But <laughs> at the same time, you know, I always just say, we don't send uh, truckloads of pillows and side tables. They didn't have the budget for that. Right. So it was not like we st- they styled the f- photographs, but they didn't bring product in. This was really uh, this authentic kind of thing about this is their home. You know, maybe you take something out of storage. Maybe you hide this, you move a chair away. But it wasn't like bringing in a dining set and putting right. it in the dining room. And so when you guys were evaluating I mean, this is back in the days when you guys were probably doing 
close to 12 issues a year, if not, right? I think there were 10. There was, 10. I think the most I ever had was 10. And you're probably shooting originally like four to five stories per issue. Does that sound right? Yeah, five, usually five to six. Five to, wow, five to yeah, six. Yeah. So so then you're doing like, let's just say 60, 60 houses, 60 projects a year. I'm imagining you're getting a submitted to you. Hundreds. Many times more than that. Many times, hundreds. So like, what's that process like? How are you picking? How did you pick? How did you know what would work? Well, if, you know, I always said that to designers when we had to reject. I said, it's not. It's not that we're rejecting your project. It's just it's not right for us at this time because if we'd already shot three houses in the Hamptons, we're not going to take two more Hamptons houses. We had to have try and have a range of geographical areas. I mean, still, we ended up being heavily New York and L.A., West Coast, because that's just where a lot of talent is. And we didn't have the staff to go out and hunt in the South or in Chicago, which is one of the things that I regret, just as I regret we didn't do enough designers of color and all of that, which the talent was out there, but we didn't have the staff to go and find it. And we had so many projects coming in. So when we did get projects, you know, I would, when I would talk to designers, I would say, you know, you guys, when you get a great client, that's the project I want to see. I said, most of your clients want to have what their neighbors have, but a little better. You know, <laughs> and that and and that's fine. That's what keeps you know, designers in business. That's what keeps it. But when they get a visionary client, and it's not always just a client with a big budget, but it's somebody who lets them take a risk, yeah. take a risk, and encourages them and all of that. I said that's what you want to see because my feeling is that I don't come to a magazine to find what I already know. I want to see things I haven't seen before. I want to have ideas that I haven't had before. Not that we didn't do. Many projects over the years by, you know, Stephen Gambrell or Robert Couturier or whatever. But hopefully they weren't projects that looked like their previous project. There were certain designers that we did a lot. But, you know, we want, we always were looking for fresh talents or a fresh take on things, a fresh take on tradition. But were there signature elements of the magazine? Yes. I mean, I think, I think El Decor, and I think this really started under Margaret, became the, the Suzani capital of the world, you know, or right. uh, there used to be a joke that, oh, Anita Sarcides in town, you know, all all of the hydrangea better be nervous because she was nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Big bunches of hydrangeas, you know, and that's what she loved. Yeah. But, you know, I always was looking for something slightly different because I think that's, the, if you become predictable as a magazine or even on your Instagram feed these days, people are going to stop paying attention. Right. Right. So talk to me a little bit about what you see, because obviously you really were part of the publishing and editorial industry, I think at really its heyday, right? Particularly for the home market. And obviously a lot's changed since then. What do you see going on out there that you think is interesting? What are you homesick for? Like, how how do you assess kind of the state of that industry and and what excites you and, 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 and what disappoints Okay, this is a loaded question. Thank you, Anna. Yeah. I'll maneuver. No, I think what what I miss about the magazine, where people say, "Oh, do you miss the magazine?" I said, "I don't miss necessarily producing the magazine, dealing with the advertising." What I miss was working with a team of people. Yeah, and I had a great team always, you know. And and one of the things I'm proud of is how much talent I worked with at El Decor and Encourage, or even at Vogue. I mean. My assistant at Vogue, Staline Volandis, is now the editor of Town & Country and oversees El Decor, you know. And doing so an ho- awesome job. I love Town & Country. 
Yeah. I'd like to think I had a little influence on yeah, her. Yeah, I think maybe. You know, <laughs> and our team, you know, we we had Mika Ten Hav, who's such a brilliant stylist. Fantastic. Melissa yeah. Colgan, who's now a designer in D.C., Ben Rayner, you know, all these people that I hopefully encourage them to come along and, and do that. And that's what I miss about magazines. I mean, the thing is, one of the things I learned when I left El Decor, as I say left, I mean, I was booted out, but um, that's another long story we won't get into. Um, I, I went to work at Deering Hall, which is how I came to be involved with you, Anna, yeah. at Deering Hall. And one of the things that so impressed me about Deering Hall, which I really didn't know, was how much talent there is across the country. Because, you know, on the internet, you know, like you, like you said, when I could do 60 projects a year, I had no idea of the other talent that was out there. Right. And I think a lot of a lot of designers probably think, oh, I'll never get into AD, I'll never get into El Decor. So they probably didn't even submit, you know, because I was was proud that I would say, we will look at anything. Send us iPhone, you know, you don't have to send us professional, send us iPhone shots. We can have a sense for that if we're interested in all that. And I did look at anything. I looked at every project that was submitted, but I think a lot of people thought, oh, that's a long shot. I'm not going to get it. So to be at Daring Hall... To where people could upload their portfolios and to realize how much good design there is in this country, especially regionally, it was a revelation to me. And that's one of the amazing things about the internet. I mean, the other, the flip side of that is there's so much information out there. How do you make yourself stand out and how do you get people to pay attention? But it, that was a real revelation to me to see the breadth of real talent that's out there and how passionate people are about their homes and how much money they will spend and how they will search. To, the designers will really do their education and travel and everything to make these great spaces. And it's, that's been really, really inspiring for me. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. And there, there is like that tipping point between the openness that the, I think the internet and social media has provided and also the counterbalance for the need still for great edit of that. And I think that that's sort of the challenge right now. And um, when you look at the industry now, and now I'm going to move from editorial to really home design, what is inspiring you right now? What do you, what ideas or themes do you see emerging that you think are really interesting and feel new because you've always been someone who's who's comfortable trying new things, which I want to talk about more too as well. But in the industry right now, what what seems exciting to you? Well, I think that there's a little bit of a shift in even this sort of high end design that is going. I mean, I think we've got to get away from you know the much as I loved him and I got to meet him and interview him. You know, we can't. How many more Vladimir Kagan sofas can we look at? Do you know what I mean? How much white blue clay? Upholstery fabric, can you look at? I, I mean, this is this is the thing about home design. It's the cycles are slower than fashion, but there's definitely in and out in design, and you you sort of see it. But and I, I think that what we're seeing for home des designers are they're looking to the past, but in a different way. I I think there's been such an like resurgence of interest in just around the edges. I'm not saying it's mainstream, but it's going to have an impact. You know, looking at arts and crafts, mm -hmm. that period in both British and American design. You know, I think looking backwards, but in a fresher way, not that mid-century is going to go away, but I think it's going to be integrated into more elements from the past. I mean, you know, I love a graphic, floral, wallpaper, all that stuff. But, you know, it's like, okay, what's next? I think we've been coming a little bit saturated with that. And I think that there's, there's a shift to more detailed rooms. The fact that trims are coming back in an interesting way, in a more modern way, you know. But there's like, you know, I, I just did a 
podcast with Jean-Louis Daniel, and I and in his new book, a couple of his project, a couple of his chairs in his project actually have fringe on them. And I thought that is so interesting. That's the kind of a telling thing. I think that yeah, cool. this kind of softer, you know, so much craziness in the world. We all want to have some place that we can be serene and seclude and, and all of that. And I think that that, that that sort of thing, and even the color palettes, I think, are getting to be softer. And maybe there's not quite as much boldness. I think Instagram has been huge for the industry, but I think Instagram tends to overemphasize what's bright and colorful and, you know. Right, and, and miss and, some of the nuance. And miss yeah. the nuances. And because when you're sitting in a room, you don't necessarily want to be assaulted with all that stuff, it looks great on the sh- on your phone when it's backlit and it looks fabulous, but that doesn't necessarily always work in a room. And I think there's a shift toward that, which I, I think will be beneficial. Cool. You know? Yeah. So I want to ask you a little bit about your willingness to try new things. So, <laughs> okay. I, mean, I mean, you you sort of did it when you made the choice way back when at Yale to study what you studied which also I thought was really interesting about your story was your sense of like self-assessment. Like you had a very clear-eyed assessment of like, this is the part I'm good at. This is the part I'm not. So (laughs) let's let's just be honest about it. But then also, you know, going from PR, going into editorial, starting in fashion, being willing to move into home and really take on the role at El Decor in this very like team-oriented fashion. Anyways, I don't need to re-say everything you just said, but like, and then you went to Daring Hall, which was a really different idea, which was essentially this way of creating a, I don't know, how would you describe it? I mean, well, it's interesting. You know, one of the things, when I was let go at El Decor at Hearst, one of the things they told me was that I wasn't internet savvy which they were not wrong about. But of course, then Peter Salek reaches out to me to work on his website, which was, right. Hello. Uh, you know, I will always be grateful <laughs> to Peter for that. Um, Peter. And, you know, so I became a lot more internet savvy. Is it still my first instinct to go online and do something? Not necessarily, but, you know, you have to be part of your world. I remember I, I was friendly with Herbert Mouchamp, who was the architecture critic at the New York Times for a long time before. Well, and then he died unexpectedly way too young. But he said to me one time, I don't like these critics who are always bemoaning things. He says, this is our time. We're living in our time. This is the only time we have. You have to enjoy this time. You have to find what's best in this. Figure out what's good, what you love, because this is your life. This is our time. And I've always thought that that was a really valid thing. And I, listen, I remember when you, when we first met and when you, when Cherish bought during Hall, we had lunch. I'll never forget this, Anna. And we had a really fun lunch. And then you said at the end of it, she says, well, Michael, I really don't know what we're going to do with you. You know, and I, I don't know what we should be doing with you. And I said, well, okay, Anna, well, when you figure it out, let me know. And three, three weeks, four weeks later, you called me and she said, Michael, we want you to do a podcast. And I think I'd listened to two podcasts in my entire life, you know. But what was I going to say? The fact that I hate my voice, it didn't help. But uh, I thought, you know, what am I going to say? No. I I mean, I said, okay, I'll give it a shot, you know. And that's like 75 episodes later. Here we are, you know. 75 episodes and a lot of awards later. Well, I mean, I just do um, have to say you've got the Marcom Award, Feedspot, Chartable, all these different people who really celebrate and study podcasts have all have all really called you out as doing such a fantastic job. Well, thank Which you. Which obviously but- we agree, but I mean, the thing that I knew you would be good, the reason why I knew you would be good is because when I came into the industry, I came from fashion, didn't know a soul, and I felt so much warmth and curiosity and 
you, I think, instantly identify that we didn't really know what we were doing, but we were going to give it a go. And I really appreciated that. Like, that wasn't a universally held assessment. (laughs) Let's just say that. Okay, fair enough. You made me feel comfortable and welcomed. And I think that that's a really important part about getting people to tell their stories. And you have a natural way. Right. And like I said, I didn't know about podcasts, but I knew enough designers to know that that they have issues. They have things they're proud of. They have problems they have to deal with. They have difficult clients. I knew all of that. So I knew. And when you said you wanted to really reach the designer market, which, of course, you should and makes total sense. I said, if we talk about the issues that designers are dealing with, they want to hear, not from me, because I don't know. I'm not a designer. I've never run a design firm. I don't know how to do CAD. I, you know, I can tell you if a word room is working or whatever, and I could maybe style something for, but I'm not a designer. I, I, that's one of the things that I love about looking at design and thinking, oh, I never would have thought of that. Oh, how beautiful is that? How clever is that? Or, you know, the problems that you, that designers solve, that I knew I could ask about because I, I think that's fascinating and for people to talk about that. And, and, and it can be whether, you know, there's a slowdown coming or supply chain issues. All of that is very real to me. I can, as an observer and outside of but somebody who loves the industry, I think I can ask questions and get people to hopefully be honest about that, those things. And, you know, that we've had a great response and people are happy to be on and I think are very forthcoming. Um, you know, one of the things I love that you've done about the show is kind of find this balance between sort of the the inspiration, sort of fun, kind of light, you know, the part I think everyone kind of associates with interior design or God forbid I use the word decorating, you know, kind of the zany stories and the fun discoveries and all of that with kind of the hardcore business environment, which is, you know, it's easy to forget because it is, I think in some ways like fashion, sort of a pretty an industry that deals yeah. in pretty things. Yeah, we all love it's, the gloss. Yeah, we love like the gloss. The, shiny. the truth is, you know, this is this is a you know multi billion dollar business, <laughs> and and interior designers drive it. Right. You know? And it, right, exactly. And if you're a design firm of three people, you're not a multi billion dollar industry, but you've got whatever your annual budget is. You got to get that. You've got to get the revenues it. up. It's a you big know? part of that. So yeah. it works on both levels, and. If you're at a 300-person firm, that's different than if you're at a 10-person firm. But the issues are sort of the same. And how do you keep on top of that? Because, you know, the, the amazing thing about a designer, and I always say this to people who, oh, I don't need a designer. I can go shopping. I said, okay, you can go shopping, but you don't need, you know, you can buy anything on the internet. But, you know, where do you put the light switches? How do you get right. the electricity done? How, how do you get the measurements? How do you understand scale? And then I said the amazing thing on top of that, all the designers, they solve all those issues. And then they have everything desi- delivered within a two-day period so they can do an installation. I mean, that, the logistics of that it's are magic. phenomenal. It's, it's magic. Magical. I mean, I yeah. couldn't do that to save my life. Yeah. You know? All you have to do is buy one sectional Facing the wrong way, I know, but you've more than paid for your designer. Right. Or yeah, or in New York, you can't get it through the door, you, you know? the door, that's right. That's where you have to pay to have the window moved out with a crane. Oh my exactly. God, please never. Exactly. A couple questions that came in was, what have some of your favorite topics been, would you say that we've covered? Well, I think one of the hardest ones I think to do, but it ended up being really fun was talking about paint colors. You know, mm-hmm. because that was early on. Because how do you, like you were saying, how do you write about right. the 3D thing? How do you talk about color? That right. was so interesting. But I mean, I love the ones about, you know, I'm a 
passionate gardener. I'm not a good gardener. Again, something I'm not that good at, but I love. Um, <laughs> so I've loved the ones, the episodes that we've done about gardening or flower arranging, those kind of things. And I love the episodes. I mean, I love it when like Bunny Williams will talk about her career or Miles. Mm-hmm. That's really great. But then sometimes it's really fun to talk about, you know, the supply chain disruptions. How are you handling it? How are you dealing with remote office workers, you know, in a dis- creative industry that thrives on collaboration? So, you know, there's been a, a range of subjects that are interesting to me and that are, are good. Well, I would just like to say, I think you've done a great job covering in the past two and a half years, thanks to the pandemic, the pressure and demand and focus on the home furnishings industry has been unprecedented. I mean, certainly healthcare workers had the had the hardest job, but I think people getting yelled at because <laughs> their clients' sofas weren't there on time also had really hard jobs. I mean, it's it's been rough. And I think that kind of educating and talking about like, why are we going through this? Like, why is this so complicated and kind of shining a light on that has been a really enlightening experience for even designers, certainly designers who watch the show, but a lot of people who aren't designers who just don't know how the industry works. It's a fascinating thing. So thank you for that. And, you know, misery loves company. It's much more, it's very reassuring to find, oh my God, I'm not the only one who has this problem. This big name person has this problem or, you know, oh, they have the same problem in Chicago or that we have in this little town or whatever. I think that that's very reassuring to people. You know, you're not alone in this crazy industry, you know, and it can be a crazy industry. Okay, so now we're going to do lightning round. Oh, great. Are you ready? (laughs) No. (laughs) Do you need to pour yourself a drink? No, it's fine. We'll see. Okay. Okay. (laughs) You may have already answered this because I loved when you talked about living in your time and finding the best of your time. But what's the best advice that you've ever received? Say yes. I think so many people have this inclination to say, no, I can't do this. Right. Give it a whirl. You know, I'm not sure, but why not? You know, I think you're living our motto. Cherish. Oh, well. Let's try it. You know, yeah. let's, let's try say it. yes. I love you it. You know, and here's another great maxim that I got from Anna Winter. It was always great. Not every idea works. You know, if it doesn't work, and it, and what was great about that? Not just the statement, but it was not about recrimin. There were never recriminations. How you told me this was going to work? How do you? It was never any of that. If it doesn't work, you move on. Just keep going. You know, yeah. Just Don't keep going. To- and yeah. I think, you know, that's really a great thing. Was there a moment in your career where you almost gave up? And what kept you going? Well, there was a moment early on when I came back from Europe. I really, I couldn't get another job. For the longest time, I ended up selling men's sweaters at Macy's one Christmas, um, which was great. <laughs> I would have bought a sweater for my <laughs> I really, th- it wasn't that I gave up. I really thought that I might have to move home to Boston. And that was uh-huh. scary. And because yeah. I loved the city. I loved the city. I had great friends. It was such a creative time. And it was a time when New York wasn't about money. So you had access to all kinds of things and could, you know. I mean, you still can, but it's a more expensive city. But back then, you didn't need a lot of money. So that was a scary moment. And mm-hmm. I thought I'm, not that I would give up, but that I would, was kind of defeated, you know. Yeah. Then I got a, I got my job at Gray Art Gallery. So, you know, there's always something, if you can hang on a little bit longer than you think you should have to, I think things will work out. You know, you have to have that faith. I love that optimism. In such a competitive and disruptive industry, which is not always known for playing nicely. <laughs> How have you gone about maintaining your warmth and your integrity along with your curatorial standards? Okay, well, here's my advice to anybody who thinks the design industry is tough and mean. 
Go work in Go the fashion, work in fashion. industry. <laughs> <laughs> because exactly. by comparison, it's so much. I have to say the design industry welcomed me. Because as I said, when I started El Decor as editor, and I'd been working there under Margaret for a couple of years, but I was sort of in the office. They have welcomed me with really open arms and were so enthusiastic and encouraging. Listen, are they competitive elements to this? Of course there are. You know, is there backbiting? Absolutely, there is some. We all aren't going to encounter that. It's jealousies, what pettiness, yes. But I think that's a very incredibly supportive industry. This is one of the things that's been nice about working with the DLN as well as Church is to see how supportive designers and architects are of each other, how they really appreciate each other's talent every single day, 24 hours a day, probably not. But in general, I think that's true. And, and the negativity, yes, there is some, and I've indulged in some, God knows. But I don't think it's the predominant thing in the home industry. And I think the design industry, and I think that that's really helped sustain me and to do this for as long as I have, because people are always, and they get excited about things. They're passionate. I've done this. I, you know, sometimes I, you have to come look at my work. Well, not, but you know, when people have done something they love or artists, whatever, you, they want to share it, they want to do it. And I think that comes from that as much as anything about egotism or whatever. Who would you say, we've talked a lot about people who you've worked with, amazing people, who would you identify as being your greatest teacher? I would definitely say Anna Winter. I would definitely say that, you know? I mean, and listen, I learned some things from her not to do, but... Uh, Always with teachers, you learn both, right? <laughs> right. But I learned so many things from her. And I have to say, her standards were so, always so high. And that's something. And, and I have to say, and Martha didn't express it maybe as well as Anna did in her day-to-day, but also her standards were incredibly high. I think that, you know, I respect people who are doing it because they want the best, not just they don't do it to torture people. They don't do it just to be difficult. They really have standards that they want to attain and maintain. If you were going to do something over differently, what would you have as your do-over? I think what I would have done is I would have gone Instead of coming to New York City right after college, I think I would have gone to live somewhere else first because I always knew I wanted to come to New York City. And I kind of wish that when I was young and unencumbered, I had explored more of the U.S. and tried living at a few different places. Because now I won't. I mean, you know, it's like I'm tied down here. Not that I don't travel and go places. I do. But I think that when you're young, it's good to experience a range of places and attitudes and weather. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't know how you'll feel about this question, but how, as somebody who was a client of many of the companies that you worked with, I was in the advertising business on the fashion side. It was from my perspective, and I think kind of universally understood now that the publishing industry really missed the internet. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about your perspective on how did that happen? Because I think it can help to inform, like, what are our blind spots today? And I say that as somebody who runs a technology platform, like, what are the things to look for that, you know, we just shouldn't dismiss, but we should pay attention to in, t- in terms of new technologies and thinking through things? Like, where does that blind spot come from? Magazines were distinct brands or, you know, they, they had distinct personalities. And the Internet is much different. People don't go to the Internet because they necessarily want Vogue's take on fashion. They want to know what's the latest in fashion or what's the dress that's available that they could buy or what shoes are on sale, as opposed to this sort of holistic kind of attitude toward an item. And I think this is one of the things that Cherish 
does pretty well. You definitely have the cherished look that I think, you know, you embrace the colorful, the floral, the, the mix of eras and it's everything. Visually but it's dense. Not yeah. Visually dense and rich and layered, but you don't impose it. It's not like you're part of the cherished world or you're not part of the cherished world, you know? And I think that a lot of the established magazines felt that if you went online for them, you had to plunge into their whole world. To me, in a weird way, it feels like this transfer from in print where there was a strong sense of authority and to your point, branding, to when you got online, it started to, ch- the power balance started to change. And it's well, on the internet, everybody's open. an editor. Right. You, you have exactly. the whole universe in front of you, so you get to edit what you want. It's like you get to put on your Instagram feed what you like. So everybody's editor and creating content in that sense. But again, the problem is how do you get people to realize it's there or pay attention to your content? That's what's right. really hard. Yeah, it's fascinating. Know? It's fascinating. Okay, last question. What is the one thing that every home should have? Books. <laughs> writer. <laughs> Says the writer. It's true, though. I mean, I have tons of visual books. I think they make a room. I think that, you know, if you don't have books in your home and people come into your home and they don't have a sense that you that you have a mind, do you know what yeah. I mean? I mean, it used to be in the 60s, 70s, people would go and scope out your bookshelves, you know, and see <laughs> what your tastes were like at a, during a dinner party or a cocktail or whatever. And I've been guilty of that. Now it's different because God knows we have books on our tablets and all that. But I think at books as objects are really a beautiful and not that expensive way to enrich a space and, you know, hopefully enrich your mind. And I think that that's... Um, and there's nothing no, more personal. Right. There's nothing, I mean, you need a comfortable chair, you need a lamp, you need a drinks table, all that too, you know, to go with it. But yeah, I think that that's something you need to, you know, and the flowers too. I think flowers are kind of so essential, you know, whatever your style is. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for leading us so fearlessly for the past well, 74 and now 75 episodes. It's really, really been fun to work with you on this. And, well, and thanks for being game for trying all of it and doing such an amazing job with it, Michael. We're so well, thank lucky you, Anna, you. For, for giving me the opportunity. Um, it was all because of you. So. Not really, but there you, you are fantastic. And <laughs> we love working with you. So thanks, thank you. thanks for all Vice of it. Vice versa. You've been listening to the Cherish podcast, brought to you, of course, by Cherish, which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherish Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and engineered by Hangar Studios in New York. Until next time.